Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Good. Okay. There is no reason of scripture for us. Please please to 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 10. Second Peter chapter three verses one through ten. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged and the wa- and water in water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, let's turn to that passage and uh, take a look at this intense passage. Thank you, Larry, for reading that for us, worship team, for leading us. Uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for a beautiful fall day. And uh, yeah, just thank you for, for providing that good weather for the, the men and women who are out in the fields. And uh, thank you that we can be here this morning. And uh, thank you for the people who are joining us online and, and uh, worshiping that way. Uh, you have us all where you want us right now. And that's to hear this passage. And we would pray that you would instruct us through it. Uh, help me to get out of the way, Lord. We don't want to hear Don McLean. I'm here today and gone tomorrow. But we want to hear you. We want to hear what your Holy Spirit wants to say to us. And so that's our prayer this morning. Uh, with the words of my mouth, the meditations of each one of our hearts be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, about this time last year, a librarian in Idaho was uh, doing her job. She was emptying out the book bin, the book return bin at the library where she works. And she was sorting through the mysteries and the westerns and the board books the little kids read. And in amongst all those books, she noticed an older looking book. Uh, it, was a, it was actually a children's book or a young adult's book from its time called The New Chronicles of Rebecca. The New Chronicles of Rebecca. I guess it was a, like a sequel to Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farms, if you've ever heard of that. And uh, it, was a, it really caught her notice because uh, it was actually bound in leather. You don't see a lot of leather-bound books, except for maybe Bibles. Uh, but this book was, was bound in leather. And so she you know, opened it up to see when was this book due. And, and to her surprise, she saw that it was due on November 11th, uh, 1911. 1911. That's when the book was due. It had a little stamp in there. Due, uh, actually, I said it was November 8th, just for accuracy's sake. November 8th, 1911. Uh, and so she did the, some quick math and she realized this book was 110 years overdue. 110 years. That's how long that library had been waiting for that book to be returned. Uh, talk about a late fee, right? Uh, they, they did try to track it down. Uh, actually, fortunately, they'd waived fees a couple years earlier, so there wasn't going to be any fee. But they were curious who had checked this thing out, but they couldn't figure it out. There was no note. Whoever returned it, it returned it anonymously. The library records didn't go back that far. So there was no way to, to figure out where this came from, who'd had it all this time. So instead, they just, uh, well, they slapped a barcode on it, I guess, and they, they put it in the, the history collection of, of their library, kind of the special older books section. And uh, that was that. Well, today we're going to talk about waiting. Uh, waiting not for the return of an old book, but rather for the return of Jesus. That's what our, our subject is this morning. Uh, this fall, we're studying through, uh, for anyone who's visiting with us this morning, we're studying through two little books together. We're putting the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter together, and that's our fall series. And there's a lot of similar themes in those two books, and so we're treating them together. Uh, last week, though, we took a, a quick detour. We actually, we, I had us read part of Second Peter last week, but we actually spent most of our time in other passages because I wanted to take a step back and talk about uh, the big picture in terms of what we believe about the return of Jesus. And so if you were here, you remember this. That's what we did last week. We took a step back and we looked at uh, really kind of just the basics. We didn't dig real deep into it, but the basic affirmations of what we believe about the return of Christ. And the reason we did that was that Peter talks about the return of Jesus. And you heard it just a moment ago when we heard the passage. Uh, he focuses in on the return of Jesus now in chapter 3, except he doesn't give us a lot of that background doctrine. He's not doing a general treatment of Christ's return. He focuses in on one very specific issue here in chapter 3, and it's the issue of timing. It's the issue of timing. Uh, one of the biggest issues, uh, the, the big problems, I guess is the right way to put it, that Peter's dealing with in this letter is false teachers. And so, and you've, you've, you're probably tired at this point of listening up to hearing about false teachers in our study through Second Peter, because he really hammers on that issue, especially in chapter 2. And so we went through chapter 2, and we talked about uh, false teachers and false teaching. We talked about how to identify false teachers. How can you tell if someone's a false teacher or just someone who disagrees with you? And, you know, what's the difference? And, and then we talked about how to protect ourselves. Because genuinely false teaching is really dangerous to our souls. And so we, we talked about how to protect ourselves from it. So now, what do we get now in chapter 3? What we get now is a specific false teaching. 
Right? So he's given us the general, guard your hearts against, uh, against false teaching, and, and your churches too, in chapter 2. Now in chapter 3, he gives us a specific one to zoom in on, and it's, it's these false teachers, apparently. We don't have a lot of details. Uh, we're kind of reading between the lines a little bit because it's a letter from a church leader to a, church, or a group of churches, uh, but it's pretty clear what was going on. There were teachers in the early church who were saying, Jesus is not coming back. That's what they were denying. You might remember we, we talked about how you can identify false teachers by what they deny about Jesus. These false teachers were denying that Jesus was ever going to come back. Yeah, he went up and that's it. There is no return of Christ. And so Peter's going to answer those folks. Uh, he's going to answer really their, he doesn't talk to them directly. He's going to talk to the believers. But he answers their claim by basically saying, oh, yes, he will. <laughs> that's his argument in chapter 3. Oh, yes, Jesus will return when the time is right. He's coming back. It's just not time yet. He will return when the time is right. So if you didn't go there before, please do open up uh, this passage in your Bibles or in your Bible apps. Uh, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, let's look at verses 1 through 10. I'm going to work through. We kind of teased you with them a little bit last week. This morning we're going to go through them. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And what I want to do is I want to ask two questions and answer two questions about the return of Jesus. And they're, they're questions that a lot of people have. Uh, the first question is, how do we know for sure? I mean, how do we know for sure? Because right? it has been a, a little while, right? So how do we know for sure that Jesus is going to come back? How do we know for sure? And then the second question we're going to ask is, well, then why has it been so long? If we know for sure that he's coming back, uh, what is he waiting for? Why, why hasn't he come back yet? So those are, that's our agenda this morning. That's what we're going to talk about. So number one, first question. Let's uh, do the first one first. How do we know for sure that Jesus is going to return? Why do we believe this? We talked about that a little bit last week, but I want to look at how Peter addresses it here. Because what he's going to do is he's going to point us to two things. He gives us two, uh, two answers, really, to, to the question, how do I know for sure that Jesus is going to come back? Two answers. Uh, the first answer is, is the word promise. I'm going to give you the word promise. God's word says. God sa God's word says he will return. Jesus says he will return. That's how we know Jesus is going to return. The master said so. The Savior said so. So uh, verses one, through, 1 and 2. So Peter starts out with a little bit of uh, back, background information, if you will. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder uh, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter starts out by, by reminding them, you know, this isn't the first time you've heard from me. This is actually the second time. This is the second letter I've written, he says. Um, that's why this is Second Peter. And the other letter is First Peter, right? First letter, First Peter, second letter, Second Peter. It's pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's what he says here. It's one of the reasons we, we attribute this letter to Peter. Uh, and so it's the second letter he's written. Uh, he says, written to you, and the you here are believers. And you might remember if you were here in the first sermon of this series back in September, um, I argued that Peter wrote not just to a single specific church the way many of Paul's letters are. Instead, this was probably what we call a circular letter or a general letter where Peter was writing to a group of churches in a particular region, probably modern-day Turkey. And so he says to these believers in these churches, he, he says, I'm writing, I'm writing to you folks. He calls them beloved. 
right? This is how we know he's, he's talking to the believers. So he's going to, this is important for how he thinks about this. Yes, he's addressing these false teachers in terms of the argument they've made against the return of Jesus, but there's almost a little bit of a sense of he's like, but I don't want to talk to you guys. I want to talk to the believers, right? He wants to talk to us about how to think about this false teaching that these people were, uh, were, were promulgating, that they were spreading. And he calls them beloved, <clears throat> and that's important too. It's important because it tells us he's talking about believers. It also uh, it notes the, t- the shift in tone. And so chapter 2 was very serious, right? very intense. Um, you know, he's, he's in protection mode. He's like you know, mama bear mode, right? He's protecting the church in chapter 2. But now in, in, uh, in chapter 3, he kind of turns to the cubs, if you will. He's, he's going to talk to us. He's going to talk to God's children. And, and, uh, and so his tone switches to a, really a tone of encouragement, right? He's equipping us here on how to stand firm on this issue. And so, and so he tells us, uh, here's, here's how he's going to encourage us. He says, I want to stir you up. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And he talks about our sincere minds. And so he, he kind of stacks up these words uh, to, to say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change the way you're thinking, or I want to focus the way you're thinking. That word uh, stir up means to wake somebody up mentally, to make them alert. And, and so he says, I want you to be alert about something. And here's what the something is. It's God's word. See where he does that there in verses 1 and 2. I, I'm, I, I want you to think about, I'm stirring up your thinking so that you're focused on God's word. He says, I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord through your apostles. So we got our prophets and our apostles again. Uh, you might remember them from chapter one because those are the same two categories we talked about when we talked about who wrote the scripture. Who wrote the Bible? It's the prophets and the apostles. Those are the broad, broad categories we use. The prophets... Moses functioned as a prophet. You know, Samuel, David, when he wrote scripture, was functioning as a prophet. All of those, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them. The prophets wrote the Old Testament, and the apostles, Peter, Paul, John, all of them, the apostles wrote the New Testament. So, so what he's talking about there, he doesn't use the word scripture, he doesn't use the word Bible, but he, he doesn't even use the word word, I don't think. Uh, but that's what he's talking about when he talks about the prophets and the apostles. So he says, focus your attention on on, on the word, on God's mind. And so he's reminding us here, as we come, you know, we're thinking about, we're leaving those false teachers behind in chapter two, and we're shifting now to this false teaching he wants to focus on. And where does he, he start? He starts with the scripture. Because that becomes his context in verse three. He says, the reason you need to fix your minds on God's word is there's gonna be scoffers. Here comes the scoffers, he says. And what are the scoffers gonna do? They're gonna deny the return of Jesus. Right? They're going to deny that Jesus is going to come back. They'll deny other things, too. This is not the only doctrine that gets questioned, not by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> but in this chapter, it's the one he's dealing with. So let's read his words. So he's got us thinking about the word. He says, remember the holy prophets. Remember the words of the apostles, uh, the words of the Lord through your apostles. Here's why. Knowing this, first of all, first order thing to remember, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
All right, so these are the scoffers. Uh, let's deal with the uh, last days first. Let's deal with that term last days. Uh, it's probably the one that caught your attention. Uh, last days in the New Testament. All right, so I'm going to might uh, surprise a few people. I don't know. Uh, last days in the New Testament, when you see that term, it refers to the whole big chunk of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. That's all the last days. And, right? and that's what he says. He's, that's why he's talking about scoffers in his own day. So it's, he had scoffers. He had last days. Uh, biblically, that's how that term is used. Now, I know we're used to using that term differently. Right? We're very used to last days as, you know, the, the seven years before Jesus comes back. Right? And, and, and that's how oftentimes kind of casually we will use that term. Uh, but in a, a technical sense, in a biblical sense, uh, the last days uh, have been running for 2,000 years and counting. That's, that's how the last years go, uh, last days go. And uh, you, you see that in this text, but actually I think an even clearer verse is in Hebrews. To me, this is the zinger verse on this issue. Um, Hebrews begins this way. Uh, long ago, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So Old Testament, God long ago spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, writes the author of Hebrews, in 60 AD or so, in these last days, he says, God has spoken to us by his son. So do we live in the last days? Sometimes people ask pastors that question. I'll say, oh, yes, we do. (laughs) Yes, we live in the last days. And so did Peter. And so did Augustine, and so did Martin Luther, and and so did John Wesley, and all the rest of them. We do live in the last days in that sense of the term, right? So we're living in the last days. So Peter then tells us something that us last days people, all of us waiting for the return of Jesus, that's really what characterizes the last days. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. Nothing else needs to happen. We're just waiting for him to come back. He says, here's something you're going to deal with. You're going to deal with scoffers scoffers, he says. Uh, it's, a, it's a very um, vivid kind of a word. It, the word means to mock or ridicule, right? Just what you think. It's, make fun of somebody. That's, that's what the verb here means. And so a scoffer is someone who mocks or ridicules or makes fun of other people. And, uh, and these guys aren't going easy on it either. You know, the, the, he says the scoffers come with scoffing, so he uses the same word, he repeats it twice. The scoffers come with scoffing. It's like that old pop song, haters gonna hate. Well, that's what scoffers, you know, scoffers gonna scoff. Right? Scoffers gonna scoff. That's, that's what they do in their very nature. They, they come with their scoffing. They, they ridicule, they make fun of believers. They, uh, they, they, they uh, scorn uh, what we believe about, in this case, specifically the return of Christ, but many other things as well. And so he, dip, he typifies this, right? He, he kind of, he, he quotes them. Uh, where is, all of this is a quote. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, right? As long as history has gone on is what they're saying. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so that's what they're saying, right? They're saying it's not real. Jesus isn't coming back. People like Peter told you he is. People like Paul told you he is. But they've sold you a bill of goods. Jesus is not coming back. There is no return. Peter answers them. Peter says, they're wrong. They're wrong about that. How do we know? Because God's word says. That's, what he, that's, where he, that's his first line of argument. So he says, don't listen to the scoffers. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. 
And the Lord says he's coming back. It's one of the reasons I did what I did last week. I wanted us to see that it's not just uh, this kind of random thing that we believe, right? And so we looked at Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, This Jesus, an angel talking to the apostles, says, this Jesus who you just saw go up into heaven will come back the same way, the angel says. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will descend with a shout, uh, Paul writes. And there's lots of other verses. We didn't look at half of them last week. You know, there's so many other verses. This is not a, a minor doctrine. The return of Christ is not a minor doctrine. It's a, cr- a doctrine. It's a crucial, central uh, affirmation of Scripture and something we believe. You know, Jesus in John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Is heaven a place that we're only going to go to? No, heaven is also a place from which we wait for the Savior to come. Uh, Hebrews 9.28, I'm giving you a smattering here, so you see it's not just one author, right? Hebrews 9.28, Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. Christ, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, when did that happen? That happened the first time he, he came. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, not the second time, no, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming back to get us, Hebrews 9 says. And then, of course, is the book of Revelation. <laughs> we could read the whole thing, but let's just settle for one verse. Uh, Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So how do we know? Answer number one, how do we know Jesus will return? We know Jesus will return because Jesus said he will return. If you trust him on everything else, he said, better trust him on this one too. That's not all, though. That's not all, though. Um, Peter also has a second answer to the question. So how do we know for sure? Uh, the other answer he gives, I'm going to use the word precedent. Precedent. God has done this kind of thing before. That, that's really what he says in, uh, in the next little chunk here. So let, let's look again at verse 4 before I read 5 through 7. Because you, you kind of have to understand, we have to understand what they're claiming The scoffers will scoff. They'll say this. Where is the promise of his coming? And so they're like, where is he? You say he's coming. Where is he? Well, forever. Then they they say why they don't think he's coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so their basic argument that they're making is things never change. Nothing ever changes. History just keeps going. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a circle. It just all can't like, repeats itself. Nothing ever changes. This is how it is. That's how it was. This is how it always will be. Jesus isn't here now. Jesus is never coming back. So it's, almost, there's almost, it's almost like a theological uh, uniformitarianism, I think, is the, is the term for it. The way it is now is the way it always will be. That's their basic uh, argument. Peter says that's nonsense. That's nonsense, he says, right? So they're basically saying God's not working in the world today, so he's not going to work in the world in the future. Peter says, you don't even know your scripture. They don't know what they're talking about, he says. And so you see his refutation in in, uh, verses 5 through 7. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, and he attributes to them uh, negative motives. They're not just ignorant, they're purposely ignorant. Uh, They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And, and that by means of these, referencing the waters, the world that, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, here's the thing. A lot of times when we talk about God working in the world, we will just very naturally focus in on specific things, right? We'll we'll be um, specific about it. And so, and this comes from scripture, right? I mean, we read about all, all, so many of the miracles God did, he did in specific places. So we talk about the, the plagues in Egypt, or we talk about the parting of the Red Sea, or we talk about the fall of the wall of Jericho, or we talk, you know, we look at the ministry of Jesus, and he calmed this storm, and he walked on this lake, and he healed this crowd of, of people. And there's a certain particularity to a lot of the miracles. And when we talk about God moving in our own lives, it's the same thing. You know, we, we, we are sick, and so we pray the Lord will heal us, and, and we'll, we'll ask him to move in the world today in specific ways. And that's absolutely true. God does move in the world in specific ways. He raises up leaders and takes down leaders, all this kind of stuff. He's working actively, the scriptures teach, in and through history. Sometimes, though, we lose sight of the fact that he's also kind of in charge. He's sovereign. He's in control over the very biggest picture. And it's easy when you're focused on the specifics to lose track of that. And that's where Peter takes us in verses 5 through 7. It's not just the little stuff, it's the whole shebang. It's the whole thing. And so he starts with creation. And and here's what he's saying in verse 5. He's saying there was a time in what we call the past. He doesn't begin to try to nail it down, but there was a time in what we call the past where the heavens did not exist. They weren't there. And then God made them exist. That's what he's, he's, when he says the heavens existed long ago. They, They came into existence. Before they did, there was nothing. You read Genesis 1.1. Before he he did it, there was nothing. And then he did it, and there was something. Uh, And he didn't just do that with with the heavens. He did it with the earth, he says. And so there was a time in in what we call the past when the earth did not exist. It wasn't here. So so they're arguing, ah, things never change. He's like, dudes, there was a time when this didn't even exist. And then God formed it. He says, God formed it. Uh, and he talks about water, formed it out of water and through water. And you're like, what's with that? Why, how did God make everything out of water? I thought he did it with his word. What Peter's doing there is he's quoting Genesis. And in quoting Genesis, he's taken us all the way back to Genesis. So we know he's talking. That's why I'm talking about creation right now, because that's what Peter does. Uh, he's quoting Genesis 1, 6, and 7. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were over the expanse. And it was so. I don't know what that means. I really don't. I don't know. Maybe the rest of you probably do. Every time I read that, I try to picture it. But I know this, what it's telling me is that God made the waters and then God used the waters and he separated the waters and, he, and, and boom, there was the earth that you and I know looked different because it was pre-flood, but, but, but he, he did that. And so what's he saying there in verses 5 and 6? He says, there was no heavens, God spoke, then there was heavens. Uh, there was no earth, God spoke, and then there was an earth. And then he did it again, right? So again, precedent, he did it again with the flood, He reminds them of the flood. Peter loved the flood. This is now the third time in the three letters he wrote where he uses Noah as an example of something. And so he reminds them, uh, you know, so God formed the whole earth uh, in some way that involved water. And then look what he did, verse uh, 6. He used that uh, same water to destroy the earth. And he doesn't use Noah's name, but you know that's what he's talking about. He's, he talks about the deluge, the flood. And so God used the waters uh, to, to create the earth, and then his prerogative, he used the waters to destroy the earth. What did he do? He, he judged uh, the whole world, right? He judged not just 
Um, a few people, it wasn't a local flood or a regional flood. Uh, Genesis is very clear, it was a global flood. God judged everyone except Noah and his family, eight people and the animals that, that God put in the ark with them. And so the whole planet was affected. So at creation, the whole planet was affected. At the flood, the whole planet was affected. And someday when Jesus comes back, the whole planet will be affected. That's the argument he's making. That's why he takes us back to creation, back to the flood. He says, there's precedent. <laughs> if you think everything just goes on the way it was yesterday and the way it is today, you're mistaken because there will come a day. We don't know when yet, but there will come a day when he will judge the world. He will act in the world with the same level of global cataclysm that he did when the flood came. That's the argument. That's how Peter rebuffs them. So how do we know? So you say, how do we know Jesus Christ will return? Well, one, he said he would return. And then number two, he's done this kind of thing before. You say, well, he, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't destroy the whole earth. Oh, really? Take a look at the book of Genesis, read 6, 7, and 8, and you'll see what the Lord will do when, when he's ready and when he wants to. So that's Peter's answer, right? That's Peter's answer to how do we know for sure. That brings us to the second question, the other one. And this one's probably a little more personal for most of us or, or, or kind of just the one that we, we feel a little more in the gut. And the second question is, well, then what are we waiting for? Why has it been so long? I mean, if, if Jesus is going to judge the whole world, well, then let's get on with it already. It's, it's not like there isn't plenty of sin to judge. I mean, is he waiting for it to get even worse? I mean, sometimes people, we, we wrestle with this kind of thing. So, so what's... What's the delay? And I'm going to put delay in quotes. I'm, I'm actually trying not to use that word delay because it's no delay. But to us, it feels like a delay. So what's, what's the delay? Why has it been so long? Well, here's how Peter answers this question. He answers it by pointing to God's character. Right? So he's, he's, I don't know if it's the way we want him to answer it, although it's very satisfying, I find, in the end. But he doesn't take us through charts or anything. He takes us through, or timelines, he takes us to God. He says the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because of God's character. And there are four aspects, four aspects of God's character in verses 8, 9, and 10 that help, that answer the question. You say, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Well, it's because of these four things. So let me show you what they are. Number one, he is eternal. Jesus has not come back yet because God is eternal. God does not experience time the way we do. Right? Time is not to him what it is to us, which means he has a different perspective on the whole question. Right? It's why I'm putting delay in quotes. and, and uh, you know, it's, it, 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 He has a different perspective. That's verse 8. So he says in verse 8, <clears throat> But do not overlook, talking to us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So back in verse 5, he told us something that the scoffers were overlooking. Now he tells us something that we would be in danger of overlooking. He's not scolding us, though, but he's just like, you know, so they were overlooking this. You need to not overlook that, that this thing over here. Right? So really, it's a way of saying remember. Here's what we need to remember. He says, remember, God is eternal. Remember that God does not measure or experience time the way that you and I do. And then he uses this wonderful language, right? For, for one day, <clears throat> excuse me, is as a thousand years to him, and, and a thousand years are as one day. He's actually drawing here from a psalm. Uh, he's, um, 
He's told us to pay attention to the word back at the beginning of the chapter, and now he's doing the same thing. Even though he writes with apostolic authority, uh, he could say this a different way, but he actually quotes, or, or uh, he, re- he rephrases, but he pulls from a psalm. It's Psalm 90, verse 4. Uh, psalm 90, verse 4. You could write that in the margin if you like to do that kind of thing. And uh, actually, let me read the, the verses around it just for context. So this is Psalm 90, verse 3. The psalmist is praying to God. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, uh, for a thousand years in your sight. This is the part Peter, Peter takes. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them, talking about us, you sweep them away as with a flood. Uh, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Psalmist says, we're like a speck of dust. He's like a monumental mountain. We're like a blade of grass. He's like a towering oak tree. Forget the oak. It's a sequoia. He's a sequoia uh, tree. We're like a dream, he says, right? We're like a dream. What, you know, it's vivid, so vivid one moment, and then it's gone the next. He says, we're, uh, we are like a dream, Right? You probably had dreams last night. When you were dreaming, it was so vivid. Right? You, you were there. You're like, wow, I can fly or whatever. Right? It's so vivid. You wake up 10 minutes later. You're like, what, what was that dream I had? I think my kids were in it. I, no, I don't think they were. That was somebody else. Yeah, it's, just, like, it's, it's there and then it's gone. He says, that's what we're like. Meanwhile, the Lord, Lord's, the Lord's opposite. The Lord is, is reality itself. Right? And I think of what Jesus says, again, maybe because I was reading it this week, Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's the idea? I'm, I'm the, the one who was and is and is to come. I'm reality itself, uh, God says. And so the point there in the psalm, as well as here in 2 Peter, is that there's no comparison. Right? There's no comparison between us and God. When it comes to these things especially, and, and the psalmist, he's not trying to make us feel bad. You know, he's not kind of, you know, beating us down or something. The point is to help us see ourselves correctly. There's no comparison in so many things. Some attributes of God, you know, God is perfect love. We're able to love. I mean, there's some parts where we, being made in his image, we reflect his image. But there are other parts of us that are just so different. He is so different from us that there's no comparison. Time is one of them. Right? Time is, is one of them. When we, uh, we just experience time so different. Because there was a time when we did not exist. Right? I was born in, in the early 1970s. In the 1960s, I did not exist. Right? I, I mean, that's so hard for our brains to wrap around sometimes. Uh, when we think about 500 years ago, think about 500 years ago. Uh, that's so long. Columbus. Columbus sailed the ocean blue 530 years ago. Right? It's like so long ago, right? So long ago. So to God, it was like breakfast time. Not that God eats breakfast, but it was just like a few hours ago to God, right? It, it's that sort of experience. Or maybe this, you know, I say it's a matter of scale, it's a matter of perspective. I could walk to the back of the auditorium right now, and it would take me probably 10 seconds. Right? Maybe if I, I jogged, maybe even a little faster. Let's call it 10 seconds. I could get to the back of the auditorium in 10 seconds. It would take an ant hours to go that distance. Right, so if there was an ant up here, and he was down here at the, at the base of the, of the podium here, and that ant decided, you know, he smelled the cookies from the, from the fellowship time, and he's like, I'm, I'm going to go out there. It would take that ant hours to get there. 
If it could even, I don't know enough about ants. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if the ant could see that far or hear or smell or whatever it is ants do. It would be, you know, for me to get to the back of the room would be a, a, a short trip, right? A very, very short walk to an ant. It's the trip of a lifetime, right? It's a journey of a lifetime for an ant. And, and that's what, that's the scale. That's the perspective we're given here on ourselves. And I think that's part of the answer. It's been a long time from our perspective, but, but to God, it, it's been hardly any time at all. That's, that's the first answer to the question. The Lord is eternal. That's part of it. The second aspect of God's character that answers our question is that he's patient, right? So he's also patient. He hasn't returned yet because he's so patient. Peter talks about this in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, it's the same word, but he is patient toward you, Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, like those scoffers, but he is patient toward you. The word for slow that Peter uses here, it means to hesitate or delay or, or to hold back, right? So to hold back in hesitation. So really, I think indecisive. If I was going to define this word, I would, I would use the word indecisive. So uh, the Lord is not indecisive uh, because someone who hesitates uh, is delayed in making their decisions. It's someone who doesn't know what he or she wants, right? So you ask him, uh, you know, hey, what's your favorite ice cream? He's like, oh, I like vanilla. Oh, wait, no, no, actually chocolate. I like chocolate. Oh, is mint an option? I didn't know if mint was an option. I thought you just, you know. And you, you know, you, you just want to give them a bowl of ice cream and it turns into a 10-minute ordeal. That, that's uh, an indecisive person. That's what that word slow means, right? So it's slow in that sense. It's indecisive. Peter says, you need to understand that is not what we're talking about with God. When you say, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? It's not because he's up in heaven going, oh, is, is now? Oh, no, no, maybe not now. Oh, is, was that, is, that, is that the beast? Oh, is that the beast? Maybe I'm going to go back. No, he knows exactly when he's coming back. He knows exactly what the appointed time is. He appointed it uh, after all. And so it's not that he's indecisive. It's that he's patient, Peter says. He's patient. You see these two words he sets against each other. He, he sets patience against slowness. And there's a big difference between the two. Because when someone is patient, a patient person knows what he wants. Right? A patient person knows what he wants. He, he's just, it, it's not that he, he doesn't know. He knows he's just willing to wait for it. He's willing to wait for it. Uh, to me, I think of a hunter. I was thinking of this. What, what, how can we picture this somehow? I, I thought of a hunter. I'm not much of a hunter myself, but I've known lots of hunters in my life. Hunters have to be patient. Right? You really do. Uh, you, know, you will sit in a tree stand for hours sometimes, right? In the cold, right? <laughs> depending on which season it is. Or you'll sit in a hunting blind, barely moving, barely breathing, waiting, right? patiently waiting for that right moment, right? For just that right moment. That's what God is like, Peter says. He's patient. And so when we talk about the second coming and the timing of the second coming, it's not that God is waiting to, to see what happens before he decides. So there isn't some sense in which God's, you know, kind of, you know, see how much worse things might get or, or, or anything like that. It's, it's not a matter of being hesitant. It's a matter of being patient. He's waiting for that time that he himself has set to send Jesus back. That brings us to the third aspect, because it gets now to the issue of motivation and how he appointed that time. The third aspect is mercy. So the Lord is eternal, the Lord is patient, and the Lord is merciful. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? He hasn't returned yet because he's merciful. 
He's merciful. That's the rest of verse 9. Let's read the whole verse this time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is the Lord waiting so patiently? Why is he like a hunter waiting for that, that perfect shot? Why? The answer is that he's giving more people more time to accept Jesus. That's the answer. That's what Peter says. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God doesn't want anyone. If you ever wonder, how does God think about lost people? He's not up there going, oh, you wait till I get my hands on you. No, no. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants people to repent. He wants people to accept his son. That's God's heart. That's what this verse is about. Uh, Not every verse answers every question. I don't think this verse is, uh, you know, those of you who are in the uh, adult class this morning, um, you know, we got into a little bit into the issue of election. I don't think this verse is even about this. I really don't. I don't think this verse is about God's uh, sovereign will. This is about God's heart. Again, how does God feel about lost people who haven't come to Jesus? He wants them to come to Jesus. That's his heart. That, that's what, how God feels. And that's, that's his mercy. We'll just use the word mercy here. Uh, why is he waiting? He's waiting because he's merciful. He's given more people more time to be saved. And if you think about it, we should all be very glad that he does that. We really should. Because there was a time when every one of us wasn't saved yet. Right? And I, this, this, is gonna work, this is going to work better for people who came to the Lord as like teens or as adults uh, and I know that some, we have some young people who were blessed to walk with the Lord their whole lives. You can't even remember what it was like or think what it was like to not walk with Jesus. But many in this room know what it's like to not walk with Jesus because we did it. Right? You did it. You didn't, you never, you know, there was 10 years, 20 years, 40 years perhaps where you didn't walk with Jesus Christ. You wandered, you rebelled. Uh, you know what that's like. And now you're not anymore. Now you walk with Jesus. And so aren't you glad that he waited? Right? Aren't you glad? If you were saved in 2010, aren't you glad Jesus didn't come back in 2006? Because you wouldn't be where you are right now. And so that's why he's waiting, right? He's waiting, and I don't know when he's going to stop, but, but for now he's waiting for people like us. He's waiting to give more people more time to come to the Savior and be saved. He's waiting because he's merciful. However, and this is going to bring us to the last one, uh, the time will come someday. Someday the time for mercy will run out. Don't ask me when it is, only he knows. But someday the time for mercy will run out. And that brings us to the fourth aspect, which is that the Lord is holy. So why hasn't the Lord come back yet? The Lord hasn't come back yet because the Lord is holy. Now you say, what does that have to do with the timing? What does that have to do with the timing of Jesus? How is his holiness connected to this waiting period, these last days that we live in? And the answer has to do with what will happen when Jesus returns because God is holy, right? Because God is holy, what happens when Jesus returns? So it's really, it's connected to the mercy point. Uh, when Jesus returns, he brings judgment. That's what's going to happen. When Jesus returns, he brings judgment. And, and again, Peter couldn't be more clear. I suppose he, if he could have written more verses, but it's very clear, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, which is the biblical term for the, 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 when the Lord appears, his coming, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what's he saying there? And we'll look at this more next week, and we'll talk much more next week about the response because that's how the letter ends. But what he says there in verse 10 is that when the Lord returns, that is the end of everything. There's no more uh, chances after that, right? And so why? It's because the Lord is holy. The Lord's so holy, so righteous, that when Jesus returns, he will be compelled. We don't usually use this word, but he will be compelled by his own character. He'll be compelled by his own holiness to judge all of the sin that has not been covered by the blood of Jesus. This is why it's so important for us to come to Jesus by faith so that his blood covers our sins and washes them away and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So, so that, our sin was already judged on the cross, but the sin that wasn't judged on the cross will be judged when Jesus comes back. For now, he patiently waits. He withholds that judgment, but when he comes back, he won't withhold it anymore. That, that's what, what he's teaching there. Instead, he'll, he'll, pour, back, he'll pour out his righteous wrath, which flows out of his perfect holiness uh, at that time. And, and that's what you get in verse 10. If you, there's actually four parts to verse 10. Uh, the first line is the timing. He says, well, when's that going to be? He says, you don't know. Right? That we talked about a little bit last week. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. You, uh, that is, you won't see it coming. Right? We won't know when it's going to happen, so be ready all the time. That's actually what the, the last part of the letter is going to say. When it does come, though, you won't miss it. So don't worry, you're going to miss the return of Jesus. Uh, when it comes, you will not miss it, he says. Uh, what does he say? He says, uh, the heavens will pass away with a roar. <laughs> not only will we see it, we'll hear it, he says. Right? The, the heavenly bodies, the stars, the moon, the sun will be burned up and dissolved. Um, I might get into that a little more next week, but it's basically all a pictures of thoroughgoing destruction, right? And really, it reaches back to verse 7, when he talked about fiery judgment in verse 7. And so what's he talking about in verse 10? If there's any question in our mind, there really shouldn't be, but if there is, he's talking about judgment day. That's what verse 10 is. And then he says, what happens on judgment day? Well, the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. The works of the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. But it's an interesting word choice. Uh, he's talking about the smashing up the planet, but, but you realize when you get to the last part of the verse 10 that he's, he's talking about judgment of the, of the people, right? And so our works, my works, your works, the scoffers' works, Hitler's works, Mother Teresa's works, everybody's works will be exposed. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. And when that day comes there will be only two options. There's just two options according to the rest of Scripture. We'll either be found in Christ or we will be, we will be lost. Because that's the only work that matters in the end. The other works will be evaluated, but, but really the, the determining factor is what did we do with Jesus? And, so, and, and that will be sorted on that last day. So we say, why has it been so long? It's been so long because he's waiting. Right? It's been so long because the Lord is waiting. Because when he stops waiting, there's no more mercy. He's merciful, but when he stops waiting because of his holiness, there will be no, no more mercy. One of the, uh, the regular columnists for uh, World Magazine, it's a news magazine with a Christian worldview, uh, one of their regular columnists is a woman named Janie Shaney. And uh, last winter, it was about a year ago, actually, she wrote a, a column on this question. And I knew I'd be preaching about it sometime, so I, I saved it. It was, a, it was a really good column where she just reflected on the very question we've been wrestling with, which is, uh, you know, th- that heart, well, we believe in the doctrine, but just 
personally, we struggle sometimes with, with the timing of the return. Really, she, she posed the same question we did. What is he waiting for? And uh, she, she just, I want to quote her a little bit here. She wrote, uh, she, she described the struggle this way. She said, he has wrapped up the past, talking about Jesus, he has wrapped up the past, but does he really hold the future? Of course, and yet, it's been so long, right? She's talking about our struggle. It's been so long and so much has happened uh, with multiplying crises and confusion. See, World is a news magazine. That's all they do. They report on all the crises and the confusion. Uh, with multiplying crises and confusion, the fall of hopes, the rise of chaos, it seems that now would be a good time to return. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't, not yet. She says a bunch of other things. I recommend the column if you want. I could get you a copy of it, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to quote the whole thing. I actually just want to quote the last few sentences because she summed it all up pretty well. Here's what she says, and then I'll pray. Uh, we are impatient and fearful and doubtful that it will ever happen. I don't know how many of you would, would admit to that, but <laughs> sometimes I feel that way. We're impatient and fearful and doubtful that it will ever happen. It's, it's been so long and times are so frightening. What is he waiting for? He's waiting, she writes, for you. He's waiting for me. Perhaps he has cast his favorable eye on great-grandchildren yet unborn to complete his kingdom. Maybe, maybe he's waiting for them. And if he's willing to wait, she says, so can we. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for uh, the blessed hope, the promise of Christ's return. We look forward to that day, and we cry out with the apostles, Maranatha. Make it quick, Lord. Uh, but even so, help us to wait, because you don't need our advice on timing. Uh, you know the time you've appointed. And so I want to pray for myself and my brothers and sisters and everyone, everyone who names your name. Help us to wait faithfully. Help us to wait with hope, uh, in, in purity, all the things we'll, we'll talk about next week, Lord. And help us to share this good news. Uh, Lord, if, uh, if this time of waiting is, for, uh, is a season of mercy, is an extended era of mercy, then we pray that you would pour out your mercy uh, on our, our, uh, our nation. On, but Lord, I wanted to pray for, for our own area. Bring many people here in, in Atlantic and in Cass County and Audubon County and just the surrounding areas where we come from. Bring many, many people to Jesus. That's why you're waiting. And so we pray you would be doing that. We pray you would help us to have our part in it, to be faithful to you, to share this good news uh, in, uh, in, our, in our lives, both in word and in deed. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your, your mercy and grace to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.